And so for one final time, unless something happens, unless by a clear providential act of God we are led otherwise, we turn for the last time for now to the epistle of Jude, where we look at the very last verse, verse 25. But we'll read once again verses 24 and 25. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. So we saw this morning that by way of this doxology, Jude summons us, believers in Christ, to praise God. Praise God for his power, for his preserving power, for his perfecting power. And we come this afternoon to consider, secondly, that by way of his doxology, Jude summons us as believers in Christ to praise God for his power, his person rather, his person. We consider his power this morning, his person this afternoon. And note the description of the one whom we are to praise and glorify. First, he's particularly characterized here in verse 25 as the only God. The only God. The word Jude uses here for only is mono, the Greek word mono, which forms part of our English words monograph and monotheism. And as you know, a monograph is a book which is a detailed study of only one subject. We talk about a monograph. Um, then, of course, monotheism is the belief that there is only one God. Jude says here, there is one mono, one God, only one God. Now, in our time, you'll hear this word being used a lot. It's being banded about in recent weeks, in recent months. The word is disinformation. And you say, where in the world are you going with this word, disinformation? And according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, disinformation is, quote, false information deliberately and often covertly spread as by the planting of rumors in order to influence public opinion or obscure the truth. Well, here's an age-old, long-standing bit of disinformation which to this day is being perpetrated the world over and who's behind this disinformation but Satan himself you see his is the lie his is we might say the disinformation that God is whatever we want him to be or whatever we conceive him to be what that basically means, if you think of it, what that essentially means, what it essentially implies is that each and every individual can have a God that is different, one that is unique to the individual. And my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is, Scripture is thoroughly emphatic in its claim that there is one God and one only. Jude's assertion that the 
God we are to worship is the only God is actually a reiteration of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, known as the Shema. This verse proclaims the truth that the Lord is one, in consequence of which Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, we are to love him with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our might. Now here's the point. Jesus, or Lord Jesus, the best authority there is on the subject of God, affirms that there is but one God. For instance, in John chapter 5, verse 44, he speaks of the need for us to seek not the glory that comes from man, but the glory that comes, here it comes, here's what he says, we are to seek the glory that comes from the only God. To his father he prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And virtually all the apostles, when we look at the New Testament, the various apostles assert the fact that God, there is only one true God. Listen, for example, to the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 5 and 6. Here's what the apostle Paul says. He says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul lived in a pagan world just as we today live in a world that is very much heathen, a world that is anti-God, a world really of idolatry, a world of so-called many gods. And yet Paul says, for us there is really but one true and living God. In a doxology, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, he refers to the Lord Jesus as the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, he makes it clear that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So that is the Apostle Paul. Well, what about the Apostle James? The Apostle James declares in James chapter 2 and verse 19 that even the demons believe that God is one and shudder. The devils, he says, believe that God is one and tremble. Early in verse 4 of his epistle, Jude identified false teachers as those who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5 verses 20, 21, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. Here's what the Apostle John says. He is the true God and eternal life. And notice in verse 21, it's significant to note how John ends the epistle having said that, that Christ is the only true God. He says, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, friends, if we are not sure of anything else, we can be sure of this one fact and dogmatically so, that there is but one true and living God, one and only one there is. 
We today, we live in a culture that would tell us that if ever we make that claim that there is only one God, only one Savior, then we are bigoted. And yet the Word of God affirms that there is only one God. Our text tells us, secondly, that this God we are to praise, not only is it that he is the only God there is, but this God we are to worship, this God we are to praise, is also our Savior. Look at the B part of verse 25. He is our Savior. God, our Savior. There, he says, there verse 25, to the only God, our Savior. And this Savior is the very one we were considering this morning. This God, who is the only God, is our Savior, and he's the one whom we learned in verse 24 is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before his presence, the presence of his glory. Now going back to verse 5, we learn that he, this God, was the one who saved the people out of Egypt. This God saved a people out of Egypt. He's referring there to the Exodus. And here's the most wonderful truth. The fact is that unlike the various religions of the world, our Christian faith, founded as it is on the word of God, presents the one true God as not only the sovereign God, but as the God who is Savior. Luke chapter 1 verse 47. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1, chapter 2 verse 3, chapter 4 verse 10, Titus chapter 1 verse 3, Titus chapter 2 verse 10, Titus chapter 3 verse 4. The question is, what do all of these verses have in common? Yes, it is this. In all of these verses, God is referred to as follows, God our Savior. And because God is our Savior, explains why he's sometimes referred to in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, as the God of our salvation. Psalm 68, verse 19, Psalm 88, and verse 1. So here in our text, Jude praises and glorifies God as one, the only God, and two, he worships this God as Savior. Now, here's the truth. The truth is this. What can we gather from this? If there's only one God, and this God is Savior, all other pretensions, all other professions, all other claims there are of being some God who can save is nothing but idolatry. Listen, there's only one God and there's only one Savior. This God we know only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know him how? We know him through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is professed, if one claims to know God and that God is not the God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ, then that God is is an idol. We can say that dogmatically because scripture suggests that. Now thirdly, suggested here in verse 25, and you can compare verse 25, we're talking here in the piece of Jude, you can compare verse 25 with verses 1, 19, and 20, suggested here is that the God we are to worship is the triune God. The worship we are, the God we are to worship, first of all, is the only God. Second, he is Savior. And then thirdly, he is triune. Triune meaning not there, that there are three gods, but that there is one God in three 
persons. And just by way of clarification, when we talk about God as a trinity, one God in three persons, we're speaking not of three personalities, not of three modes of manifestations, but of three persons. Who are these persons? You know very well, verse 1, there's Jesus and there's the Father. We have two persons there. In verse 1 of Jude, there's Jesus and there's the Father. Jesus is the Son and there's the Father. That Jesus is God in the same respect as God the Father is God is suggested in verse 4 where Jesus is referred to as Master and Lord. Then verse 21, that Jesus is divine is evidenced by the fact that he brings with him at his return that mercy that leads to eternal life that can be said of no other person. Here it is, Jesus Christ returns with the mercy that leads to eternal life. Only of God could that be said. So there's the Father. And there's a son, but there's also the Holy Spirit. Jude makes mention of the Holy Spirit in verses 20 and 21. And so when Jude, here in verses 24 and 25, glorifies God as the one who is able to keep us from falling, when he glorifies God as the only God, the only Savior there is, really Jude is referring to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's implicitly referring to the one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you ask the question, how important is this doctrine of the Trinity? It's very important. Why? Because God, we know, reveals himself throughout Scripture as a triunity of persons, which means that if one does not believe this, if one is not worshipping God with the understanding and worship him with the recognition that he is, Father, he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we are not really worshipping God along the lines of the truth concerning himself in his word. It is often said that many a heresy begins with a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we know today cults that pose, that pose as Christians and yet they are nothing but cults. Why? Because they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, this understanding of the nature of God as being triune is what we would call part of the core of historic Christianity. It's a crucial tenet, a cardinal tenet of our Christian faith. And when we stop to think of it, all three persons, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were involved, integrally involved, in our salvation. For instance, at the infinite cost of the blood of his Son, the Father, in love for us, provided for redemption. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. We think of the Son. What role did the Son play in our redemption? Well, in willing obedience to the Father, he laid down his life as a sacrifice, as a sin offering for you and for me, so that we might not be judged, condemned to eternal damnation. In making our salvation effective, the Holy Spirit regenerated us, the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sins, 
drawing us in faith toward Christ as Savior. And then all three persons are likewise integrally involved in our preservation unto glory. Here it comes, the fact that we are kept from stumbling into perdition and will be presented blameless in the presence of God is rooted in this fact that we are beloved by God and we are kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 1, we're being kept and preserved for that final day. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has all authority in all heaven and earth, gives to us eternal life such that we will never perish, nor will anyone pluck us, snatch us out of his hand. John chapter 10 and verse 28. And then what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our preservation to eternal glory? The Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed unto the day of redemption ever abides with us, helping us along in our infirmities to sustain us, to keep us from falling. And so there you have it. This is the God we are called on to praise and worship. This God is the only God there is. This God is at once sovereign and savior. This God we are called to worship is the triune God. By way of his doxology, then Jude summons us as believers in Christ to praise God, number one, for his power. We are to praise God, as we saw this morning, for his preserving power, and we are to praise God for his perfecting power. By way of this doxology, Jude summons us as believers in Christ to praise God for his person. We are to praise him for who he is. We are to praise him as the one who is the only God, the only Savior there is. We are to praise him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then finally, by way of this doxology, Jude summons us as believers in Christ to praise God for his preeminence. We are called to praise God for his preeminence. And God's preeminence, if you look at verse 25, is highlighted by the lavish ascription of homage and honor to him. Note the distinctive elements of worship and honor that are ascribed to God. They are ascribed to him, Mark you. They are ascribed to him not as if he did not have them before. Rather, they are ascribed to him by way of recital, by way of confession of what he already is. So note the first element of honor and worship that's ascribed to him by way of confession. Keep in mind, when we talk about ascribing to, to God these various elements of worship, it's not that God didn't have them before. We are ascribing them to him by way of recital, by way of rehearsal, by way of confession. So what do we recite? What do we re ascribe to God as we worship him? Number one, we ascribe to him glory. If you look at the text, he says to the unwise God, the Savior, Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord, here it comes, be glory. What is glory? When we talk about the glory of God, when we talk about ascribing glory to God, what are we talking about? Glory is the fullness of God's radiance. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 or somewhere there in Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ as being 
the brightness of God's glory. God is characterized in scripture as dwelling in glory, as being covered in glory. The term glory is used in scripture in, in, in two ways, at least two ways with respect to God. It's used with reference to the manifested presence of God as found in Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 and 17. The manifested presence of God. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 and 17, we see there the glory of God appearing on Mount Sinai. We're told in verse 17 of Exodus 24, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. It was a spectacular sight that the people beheld as they looked there at the glory of God on Mount Sinai. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11 records that the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord such that the priests could not enter to minister. And so here in Jude 24, Jude therefore speaks of the presence of his glory. The term glory is also used in scripture with reference to God's reputation. So glory has to do not only with the manifested presence of God. Glory, when we talk about glory in relation to God, glory, the term glory, has reference to God's reputation. It has re reference to God's renown. As in Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens are telling, are declaring the glory of God. And in Psalm 96 and verse 3, we were commanded to declare his glory among the nations. What are these verses saying? Well, it's, say, it's saying among other things, one, the heavens, God's creation, are declaring his renown. They're telling forth his his reputation. And we are commanded to declare that reputation to the nations in Psalm 96 and verse 3. And so in the very nature of the case, when we consider that glory is distinctively associated with the one true and living God, the truth then is this, that all glory belongs to him, the one who is distinctively the God of glory. And understanding that, the psalmist in Psalm 115 and verse 1, and if we could understand that, if we can appreciate that fact, then we can say it with heartfelt confidence, with heartfelt assurance, with heartfelt meaning. The psalmist says there in Psalm 115 verse 1, he says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name give glory. Message is here by way of application. When we understand who God is, when we understand who God is in terms of his sovereignty, when we understand that he's the only true God who is enshrined in glory, in the brightness and splendor of who he is, it becomes us then to give him all glory. Now a second element of honor and worship that's ascribed to God, Jude suggests there, is majesty. He says, to him be glory and majesty. What is majesty? Majesty has to do with the grandeur and transcendence of God. The word that is used there for majesty is the word from which we, which we get our English word. We talk about megalomania. Megalo, megalomaniac is a person who has 
what we call delusions of grandeur. He thinks of himself or she thinks of herself as being some big, great thing. Well, here's the point. The Word of God is saying here, to God belongs this mega quality known as majesty. It has to do, majesty has to do with his being the highly exalted one. When we talk about God's majesty, majesty connotes the awesome kingly presence of God. Psalm 8 verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, the psalmist says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, God, you are large. You are huge. You are a God of grandeur. You are a God who is awesome. You are a God who is transcendent. A God who is far removed from us. You are creatures. You are a God who is far removed from that which is earthly and material. And then notice a third element of honor and worship that's ascribed to God is dominion. Jude says to him... Be glory, majesty, and dominion. Dominion is from the Greek word kratos, which forms part of our English word autocratic, the opposite of which is democratic. Autocratic has to do with the rule of a sole individual. Democratic has to do with the rule of the people. And if I might say this, here's the point. In a very real sense, and in the most positive sense of the word, our God, the God we serve, the only true God is autocratic. Why? Because to him alone belongs what? Dominion. He's God. And you see, God's dominion concerns the fact of his sovereignty and control over what? All things, over all people, over all entities. He alone is the sovereign ruler, the word of God tells us. Why? Because his kingdom rules over all. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 6, Psalm 103 verse 19. His kingdom rules over all. And this, among other things, is what gives him the right to be worshipped. Is what gives him the right to be glorified and praised as the only true God. Dominion. And then a fourth element of honor and worship that is to be ascribed to God, the one true God, our Savior, is authority. Authority. And what is this authority? We talked about dominion before. Authority has in view God's ability. It has in view his unfettered, unhindered freedom to do whatever he wills. That's who God is. There are people who have problems with that. But God is God, and God being the God he is, is a God of dominion. He's a God of absolute authority. He's the sole sovereign of the universe. Now in closing, Jude cites two facts, two facts related to the glory, majesty, dominion, authority that we are to ascribe to God. Two facts concerning these elements of honor that we are to ascribe to God. Notice first of all the B part of verse 25. He tells us that these elements of honor are to be given, here it comes, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, you and I, beloved, cannot, 
We cannot worship and praise God outside of Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. The word of God tells us the man Christ Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 tells us that we present sacrifices of worship, of praise to God, which are acceptable through Jesus Christ. As we have said time and again, your worship, my worship, however well-intentioned, however disciplined our worship might be, however sincere our worship might be, are at best flawed and at best will be rejected by God unless they are mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ, our worship leader. So first of all, the channel through which these elements of worship are ascribed to God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, notice Jude speaks of the continuity of these elements of honor and worship being ascribed to God. The continuity of these elements, dominion, glory, majesty, and honor being ascribed to God. Notice he says there at the end of verse 25, before all time, and now and forever. What is Jude saying there? Jude essentially is saying there that to God belongs all these expressions of worship, of honor, of praise and worship without limit and without end. In other words, even before we came on this earth, even before we were born, even before this world was created, God was being worshipped. God is to, con is to be continually worshipped in time and God will be continually worshipped throughout eternity well having said all that how best could Jude end this book look at the very last word amen amen and the amen at the end of verse 25 represents Jude as putting his stamp of a affirmation on such attributions, such a scripture of praise to God. Jude is saying as it were, listen, let it be so. Let it be so. Let it stand. God is to be worshipped. God is to be glorified. Why? Because he's the only true God. We, the church, say amen. We say amen to that. So as we have seen from these two verses today, the reality of the keeping, preserving power of God, the perfecting power of God, and this is the grounds of our assurance, or the grounds of our assurance is not how good we are, it's not how sincere we are, it's not how well-intentioned we are to live the Christian life. The truth is that it is God who keeps us. It is God who will finally present us before the throne of his glorious presence. And so as we said this morning, there's no need for despair, no need for discouragement, no need for anxiety and fear as to whether we will make it. We will make it. Why? Because God has promised to see us through. Consider the great comfort there is in this doxology of the Apostle Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And let the church say, 
Amen. Amen.